Hello and welcome to Being Human. I am Peter Linus and along with Joe Frost, I will be your host on this podcast. So we're back uh, looking at what it means to be human. Um, is this the simplest and yet most contested cult question in our culture today? Um, and today we are going to be looking at the riveting ideas of China, technology and AI. Yes, we are. We're looking at China's social credit system, uh, which we're going to delve into in a minute. We're unpacking a bit more about the impact of technology on following Jesus. And we're looking at AI. Now, last time I did an event in Northern Ireland, it was packed out with farmers. You mind they to explain to our London listeners why they thought this session would be interesting? Um, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, and I grew up in Dorset with a lot of farmers. What now? AI, artificial, not sure on an <laughs> EA podcast we can say insemination, is that? So, okay, let's move on. Okay. Artificial intelligence we'll be looking at. Not what the farmers thought at my seminar. Yeah, I'm really upset with myself that I didn't get that. Okay, let's just move on. Um, artificial intelligence. Great. Uh, what are we saying? So let's start with a story. Uh, there's an intern in our church and she had signed up for a store credit card to save uh, £10. And then she ignored it. And in no time at all, she owed £40. And her plan was just to keep ignoring it. And I was able to say, look, no, that is not a good idea. You're going to end up with an awful credit rating and not be able to get a loan or a mortgage. And so we were able to sort out the situation pretty much then and there and got the relatively small amount paid off, cancelled her card. And the point here is that most of us are aware that we have some sort of financial credit rating. So any idea what yours is? Well, actually, it's pretty good, although weirdly, I'm penalised for never having had a credit card. You have never had a credit card? Nope. My mum taught me from a very young age that they are the root of all evil. Um, I'm not entirely sure she's correct, but um, I don't understand them and I don't like them, so I've never had one. Whoa, man. Okay, so given you were born in Dorset and have never had a credit card, I'm not really sure you can say that you represent the big city, um, cosmopolitan fair, listeners. I've never claimed. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's always been your line. But anyway, okay. Okay, so China have taken the idea that you can score the financial credit credit worthiness of a citizen and they've decided to apply that to their social and possibly even political behaviour. Wow. Think kind of TripAdvisor or Uber ratings and your credit score all rolled into one and then just apply that to everything. Basically, China is starting the most ambitious experiment in digital social control in the world. So you've made me read some of this stuff and it is pretty scary because it goes right into the heart of some of the ideas that we're thinking about in terms of freedom and what it means to be human and what dehumanisation looks like with a lack of freedom. So come on, tell us more what's going on. Well, I can't actually believe that you read something in a century. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> um, so in, in a kind of pilot scheme that they're running, the local government awarded people points for good behaviour, such as winning a national honour of some kind, and then they deducted points for things like minor traffic offences or illegally petitioning higher authorities for help, whatever that might mean. Uh, and points mean prizes, such as a fast-track promotion at work or jumping the queue for public housing. And then the bad behaviour meant punishment. So the latest figures suggest that 23 million citizens have been banned from purchasing plane or train tickets. Wow. So it's crazy. Like, So there are all these reports of uh, internet speeds being reduced for those who waste too much time on video games. <laughs> 
and the citizens of government declared have proven themselves untrustworthy and perhaps by spreading false information or forgetting to pay a bill on time or even failing to walk their dog on a leash and as a result their freedoms are being restricted or revoked and the irony of course is that the chinese government are claiming the whole system is about building trust they seem oblivious to the paradox of building trust by constantly monitoring their people yeah, so and I saw um, a New York Times expose on this um, a little while back, where it was talking about the idea that China was developing these mass surveillance programs, and then selling the technology behind it to other companies, political parties, and even governments. Yeah, well, that's part of the issue is this could really easily spread once you've got the basic technology in place. And um, one commentator put it like this, the crux of the problem, when it comes to social credit, is the way it describes moral value to certain behaviours, introducing an all-encompassing quasi-religious aspect to a political system. In reality, this is about the imposition of power and control. It's the very opposite of freedom. Who decides what behaviours are acceptable? Who decides what points they're worth? And so China developed this pretty advanced facial recognition system to be able to follow people across their cities to make this whole system work. Um, and in 2017, Chinese officials uh, worked with BBC News to show how quickly they could track somebody down. They were kind of showing off their technology. And, and the BBC's reporter was found within seven minutes just within this huge city using the country's 170 million CCTV cameras. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible what they're developing and kind of scary at the same time. I mean, we're, yeah, we're back into 1984 territory all <laughs> over again. Worryingly so. So I was chatting to somebody recently who was aware of reports that they were beginning to extend this then beyond the kind of boundaries of China. Um, so many people leave China. They move to the West, perhaps hoping to be free in terms of jobs and different things. But then when they want to go back, perhaps to visit an elderly relative, their behaviour in their new country, could be the US, could be Australia, is being analysed and scored. And so then you don't get permission to go and visit your granny if you've been nasty on social media about China. So it's a kind of interesting story even recently about somebody, uh, I think it's Chinese-American actress, um, who had played one of the Disney characters and she was promoting China and then getting a bit of flack back about that mm. around the pro-democracy campaigns in Hong Kong. And the question was, is that anything to do with her keeping her kind of social credit score up wow. so she gets to go back to China? Now, nobody's sure, but this is the scenario people have faced. You don't get back into China if you haven't got a good score. Ugh. Okay, so whilst this is fascinating and really quite scary at least for some people aren't we a little bit off topic in oh, terms of what is our, our topic world? Joe, what is our topic um, <laughs> so reggie yates uh who is a dj i believe he just did a couple of shows on bbc they were recently on kind of iplayer and all around what's going on in china and some of these kind of changes and it was really quite scary stuff so it's definitely topical it's stuff people are getting interested in the power and control of china um but sheer job is Trump's comms chief to try and make the stuff that I say relevant and interesting to everybody else. I thought you were just calling me Trump's comms chief at that point, which would definitely That's be a, a change other, in, in job. job title. But no, go on. OK, so um, or give us a couple of reasons why you think this is relevant. Well, so we're obviously China is expanding in its influence. We're aware of that. We've got the trade wars between the US and China, or maybe it's peace now. Who knows? Um, but China is a significant global power. Um, it's going to have a significant impact on our Christian brothers and sisters in China. If China cracks this, though, as well, then other governments, as we hinted at, or private companies are going to follow suit because once the technology is available, who knows whose hands it will fall into? 
So in your mind, you're linking this also then to China's economic ambitions at a global level. Yeah, China is definitely expanding its influence, its power and control. Uh, President uh, Xi Jinping, uh, do my best to say that right, has this kind of grand plan to connect China to the rest of the world, a kind of 21st century Silk Road. They interestingly call it the Belt and Road Plan, but it's confusing because the belt is the land route, but the road is the sea route. <laughs> okay. Um, but anyway, they're, they're, they're kind of connecting ports across Singapore, India, Nairobi, Athens, Venice. And on the, the belt, uh, the land routes, they're going right across to Rotterdam. So in, in Holland, and uh, they're building this kind of network. They've invested a trillion dollars. Um, but one of the things they do is they give you the money to build the port or to build the routes, um, but then you owe them. So you're caught in a debt trap. Mm -hmm. Often they don't claim the money. They want you to use your diplomatic influence on their behalf. So everybody owes China a debt or a favor and they're just waiting for it to be called in. So as China kind of builds this influence and empire, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Yes. So this then goes some way to help us understand some of the fears around the ongoing debate around Huawei, or however you pronounce it. Um, <laughs> when... How free can we be when somebody else is controlling our telecoms infrastructure and then taking and then using all of our data? Exactly. So the big questions, the US are really reluctant about this. Britain's has a question about it. And lots of other countries are saying, who should run our 5G network? Yes. So, okay. So China is doing quite a lot with technology and with influence. Um, this also comes in massively when it, we talk about that kind of social control and freedom of religion, um, and then also the social control around manipulation and AI. So we've got a few things that are bubbling in this. How are we going to handle it? Uh, yeah, why don't we do freedom of religion first, and then we'll circle back around to artificial intelligence and facial recognition technology for our fun finale. Sure. Sounds sounds great fun. Okay. So sticking with China, why do I always get the names? Go on. You've been practicing this. We're both arguing the Uyghurs. <laughs> the Uyghurs. And see, now I can only say it with an Irish accent, which is even worse. Okay. So the Uyghurs are a group of mainly Muslim people in China. Um, there's up to a million of them being detained at the moment and undergoing what is being te uh, deemed re-education programs. Mm. Um, part of the the increasing nervousness around uh, not only an incredible crackdown of persecution and discrimination against an ethnic group, but they're also using their facial, facial recognition to track the people and then their social credit system to essentially bar them from having any meaningful part to play in society. Um, so... Back in the UK, the Bishop of Truro was commissioned by the Foreign Office to look into um, the issue of freedom of religion globally. Um, and there was quite a, an interesting report that's come out quite recently. Yeah, so he's found that Christians are one of the most persecuted religions. Um, persecution of Christians in the Middle East and Africa has reached such a vast scale that he was saying it's close to meeting an international definition of genocide. Um, the eradication of Christians and other minorities on pain of sword and violence means that the specific and stated objective of extremist groups in Syria and Iraq and Egypt, Northeast Nigeria and the Philippines. So there's a number of countries in which um, freedom of religion is under serious threat. And that's an issue in our more polarized world. It's becoming a global issue. Uh, Open Doors have a report where they kind of list countries where Christians are under the most pressure. 
And we're not saying it's exclusively about Christians, it's just we work for a Christian organization uh, and Open Doors and others are colleagues in this work and they've talked about 245 million people uh, being persecuted because of their religion. And the link there is again, China is on the up on some of these lists um, because of what's going on for the Uyghur people and for others in China and its ability to control using its social networks. Uh, what people do is, is part of the influence on that. Yeah, and what we're seeing also is that there are key trends that aren't just happening in China, but there are major trends that are spreading through so much of the world, especially when it comes to freedom of religion. Trends around increasingly authoritarian states that are clamping down, um, using regulations to control religion, especially as we've just heard about in China. And then there's also this uh, pairing with ultra-nationalists, um, some of the stuff that we might be seeing in India, um, where where the um, Muslim and Christian communities are treated as alien. Christians are considered Western and being driven out. They're being subjugated within the societal structures. And then the radical Islam movements that are moving more from the Middle East into sub-Saharan Africa, um, some of the massacres that we're seeing in Nigeria um, that again being deemed close to a genocide um, in terms of um, how... Many people are being forced out of their homes, the beheadings that were happening over Christmas, just this increasing pressure um, to uh, not just limit people's freedoms, but literally take them. For so the we life. live in a more global world, but at the same time, more tribal in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're seeing more conflict around this. Where are the boundaries? How important is religion? Um, you know, so people like Open Doors do the list of the top 10 countries. There's a world watch list. There's some great information there. We're not going to go into loads of detail now. We're just signposting some of that. But you used to work, in fact, with Release, didn't you? One of yeah. the organizations that works in that space. So you, you have some history in this area. Yeah, I think what's really interesting, especially when we in the West are having a conversation around freedom um, and we look at the limits of, of the freedom as a church um, in some of these most challenging spaces and we ask them, would you say you are free? They'd say yes. Um, and that really challenges some of our sensibilities over here because we are we are not persecuted. Yeah, that's a huge message we have to make clear. I get asked to speak in places sometimes about the kind of persecution narrative. We're like, we're not persecuted. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying there aren't a few questions and issues, but we are definitely not persecuted here in the West. No, I think there's increased marginalisation, um, but we have freedom of conscience, religion, belief, and those go to the heart of what it means to live in a free society. Um, so when we talk about this idea that God has created us to be free, um, there's, he's given us the choice of obeying him or going our own way. That sense of freedom of religion is distinctly a Christian idea. Obviously, there's times when the church has got that really wrong. And from the time of Emperor um, Constantine onwards, Christianity went from being a minority faith to a majority faith. And I think we can trace a lot of the um, alignment between the church and the state from that movement. Um, but what that means to our freedom um, is, uh, is fundamental to this conversation. Yeah, so we've had lots of issues about kind of forced coercion over history, religious wars, you know, the missionary movements at various times. So we need to put our hands up and say we haven't always done things well, for sure. Yeah. yeah, so then but then there's this question then around how do you hold a society that honors people's uh, choice and freedom to choose 
one religion over another and yet also creates a a sense of social cohesion. Um, I spent some time uh, in France a couple of years ago and uh, we moved over there right at the time when they were banning the um, the burqa swimsuit um, to be worn on the beaches because it was this situation where they were saying that it was anti-French to wear a burqa and to be fully covered. So you'd have this weird situation where you'd watch people surfing in wetsuits covering their bodies from head to foot but women wearing bikinis were being fined for wearing pretty much the same thing. Yeah, it's a crazy kind of scenario. Uh, the, the highly secularised culture of France and as societies become uh, less homogenous, we see the, the different mixes of cultures and religions and beliefs. The kind of core notion of something like freedom of thought, conscience and religion is going to become more contested on the one hand, but all the more interesting and important on the other. Yes. So when we go back to the biblical story, this God story that we keep referring back to during um, this season, um, we are given freedom in the garden, what we would call free will. There's a freedom that's central to this Christian idea of freedom of religion. But you can't be coerced into forcing Jesus. You can't uh, follow Jesus because somebody has forced you to, but a lot of religions and, and secularization and, and different ideologies don't have this idea that yeah. you can't force somebody it's to It's an inherently adopt. Christian idea that freedom of religion, though, or that's where it's based from in our thinking in something like the European Convention of Human Rights, Article 9 for the lawyers out there. <laughs> but the right to hold a belief, to change your beliefs, to manifest that, that is to live out your beliefs in religion, in worship and teaching and practices, is written into law. It's, it's, it's deeply embedded in in that European convention and then that's drawn down into UK law. The the manifesting, the living out is what they call a qualified right. So what that means is the state can limit that when it's necessary on particular grounds, public safety to protect public order, health and morals uh, for the protection of rights and freedoms of others. And that is a contested boundary on that that gets interesting for the lawyers on the case law. So basically you have the right to hold your religion. That's unqualified, that's absolute. But how you live that out can bump into some boundaries set by the state um, and what we can you can see how that could be used to, to do some limiting and that's where we're getting a little contested in this space um, uh, I'm much itching itching to discuss some of the case law on that dazzle Stay listeners strong. with my, my legal knowledge on that um, but that might have to wait in a whole other podcast uh, we'll see if we can squeeze something in on that um, but, but definitely we need to understand that the Christian story has put that into our legal system Um, But there are some limits on how we live out our faith and the boundaries. Okay, so about 10 minutes ago, we hit a fork in the road saying we were going to talk about freedom of religion and then we would come back to China and the (laughs) AI issue. Now... I don't know how to make that a seamless link, so let's just shoehorn it in. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm not sure either how we're, how we're going to do that, but I think part of the link was around that facial recognition technology being used in China to identify people who weren't behaving, the Uyghur people, um, but also being used now in the UK. Indeed. Uh, I mean, one of the major stories was right next door to our offices in King's Cross mm-hmm. with the um, facial recognition around Google. Yeah, so we've got different stories of the police using those cameras. So uh, police found out in the street, guys walking past, pulls up his hoodie over his face and he gets stopped and ultimately fined by the police. 
uh, which is kind of really interesting. There's a court case challenging some of that. In fact, a couple of court cases is about the right to the police to just sit on the street and put that camera out. And some people say, what's wrong with that? I've got nothing to hide. And others would say, well, hold on, we're on a stepping stone towards China. That's people monitoring everywhere that you are. Just read something this morning, in fact, a new piece of software that allows you to just point your camera at someone. It'll tell you their name and address if it's in any database anywhere. Ouch. And they're like, whoa, just surveillance systems on the go there. So uh, the facial recognition, one of the problems is it relies on artificial intelligence, um, but it's got built-in programmer bias. So it's 99% accurate in identifying white men <laughs> and about 34% accurate in identifying black women. Uh, oh. So that is like a massive differential. And uh, so if that's going to be used in job hiring, so I think it's Unilever. Uh, don't use AI in nearly all their recruitment processes now. Yeah, it's becoming um, much more So mainstream. loan approvals, parole cases in the States, or, you know, so in terms of prison release, medical diagnosis. But if you've hardwired in some programmer bias, and it's mainly white and Asian men who do the programming, that could be deeply problematic. Yeah, hugely. Okay, so the head of Google agrees that there is there isn't this um, massive threat to our society of some killer robot, but it's these biases in, within the data that is going to lead to to biases in yeah. its output. Some of you may remember Tay, who was Twitter's uh, Microsoft, sorry, Twitter bot, um, and within twenty four hours of being turned on, the Twitter bot had become misogynistic and anti semitic, <laughs> and the reason was it was designed to learn from people as it engaged, and as it learned it learned exactly what people were doing back to it and therefore it copied that essentially and so it became like completely racist <laughs> in the process <laughs> what an indictment on twitter so that's the difficulty with kind of machine learning it does learn the biases or problems out there ouch okay so we have ai uh, challenging a lot of areas but um let's have a look first of all let's have a look at ethics um you have some fun things to say about the self-driving cars well, yeah, self-driving cars are kind of interesting. They have to make a moral judgment at some point. So if you have a self-driving car and it's coming along to a junction, there's somebody there. Is it going to swerve to avoid that person? Is it going to harm the driver? I use the analogy sometimes. There's two people on one side and one on the other. Are they going to swerve and take out the one person? So to save the two, that's what we call a utilitarian. So you do, you know, greatest good yeah. to greatest number are of people. Are you going to save the kid but hit the pregnant mum? Or yes. what are you going to so do? what if you knew the person was really old and elderly? What if you knew the person was not supposed to be on the crossing? That they were on the red, the single person, but actually the two people were legitimately there. They had the right to cross. So should you punish the person who's in the wrong? rather than just the greater number of people? And or could you self-sacrifice yourself and hit the bollard in the middle? <laughs> and will you get to choose which ethics your car is going to drive under? So uh, can I have a red car, please, with utilitarian <laughs> ethics programmed into it? So, it's going to be great. Oh, I don't know. So, yeah, so, I mean, ethics is one big area. Like, work is potentially going to be huge. Uh, I mean, Congress 50 years ago thought we would be having a 23-hour work week yep. and only 27 weeks a year. Which That's is definitely not my world. <laughs> uh, Finland's begun this experiment with 2,000 unemployed people, giving them a basic universal income, anticipating that machines will do the work of the future. So lots and lots of jobs are at risk, uh, like lots of levels of jobs. I mean, some people think this is mainly going to be uh, kind of machine-type jobs, conveyor-belt system jobs. But a lawyer friend of mine was doing his insurance contracts, and he was saying, if we scan all these contracts through the machine, and the machine highlights five areas that are problematic... And then the lawyer only looks at those five areas. Are we covered? Are we insured? Because they argued the machine is more accurate than a lawyer. So I mean, this is jobs at all sorts of level are going to change. Um, and that's going to be a challenge. But at the same time, like 
1900, two-thirds of the population worked in agriculture or manufacturing. Today, that's now 10%. It doesn't mean that half the population is unemployed. We're going to make some changes, but it is going to change the way we work. AI already is, and we'll have massive changes as we go forward. And then uh, the third area is the um, wonderfully weird world of AI and relationships. Um, according to futurologist Ian Pearson. What a great job. I know, right? Um, 2050 is going to be the year that human robot sex overtakes human human sex. So that's a year to look forward to. Yeah, the same year we're likely to be able to marry a robot. Uh, we've seen less people get married, people marrying later, same-sex marriage, polygamous marriage, people marrying themselves. Uh, we've had seen those stories in the paper. And now there's talk about being able to marry a robot. I think somebody in Japan has already tried it. Korea, I think it is. You, you can marry your avatars, you can marry a doll. Um, I mean, how legally binding some of these marriages are i have no idea but um i mean in 2014 people in the uk one in five said they would have sex with a robot so i mean this isn't just some hypothetical idea we've seen the movies ex machina blade runner some of these like human machine interaction um it's usually a man you think about uh, this uh, you know how it's set up as in the man with a the robot is a female it diminishes the ability to form a kind of relationship and like pornography sets a completely unrealistic expectation of what can happen. And the, the real risk is not only that people have relationships with robots, but after that, you can't form a real human relationship because it will never meet the ridiculous expectations you now have of a robot relationship. And that gets us into this weird and wonderful world again of how we form human relationships because so much of it is done automated, so much of it is done on um, social media, through Tinder, you just hook up and you just move on and we've forgotten what it means to spark a relationship to flirt to find out what it means to court and to date it's all done um, at a transactional level yeah so we'll leave your flirting tips to another podcast okay, yet yeah. again but uh, Stephen Hawkins <laughs> again has warned the development of full AI could spell the end of the human race uh, and that like huge huge potential challenges coming down the tracks for us all okay so what are we supposed to do with all of this? Oh, why does everything have to have a point in your world? Because uh, we communicate messages um, and we like producing action, not just spouting off random information. Okay, let me let me help you. Um, I think what you're trying to say is that we need to not only engage on a, um, a subconscious and unintended level with our technology and within uh, the systems that are working around us but we also need to operate in a human to human level and that those communal aspects of relationship are still fundamentally important despite the fact that so much of our society is trying to break those things down yeah so we've seen robots and social care as one of the areas so oh, yeah. talking to elderly people and some of that you're saying well that's positive because there's nobody else but obviously it's got huge negative consequences that is not the same as a relationship with a real human being you tried to persuade me that TikTok was relevant to this. I said, what is TikTok? <laughs> so Which tic I have subsequently learned about in the last few days. I yes. know. TikTok is finally tipping into um, sort of mainstream conversations, but I've been positively terrified of it for a while now. Okay, so TikTok, for those of you who have managed to remain ignorant of it, um, bless you, uh, one day I can go back. Um, TikTok is a social media platform that's come out of China. And it's um, a little bit like YouTube and a little bit like Instagram. It's 15 seconds of video content. 
Um, but uh, it's one of the fastest growing social media platforms. Um, it is absolutely huge. Most of its followers are in China um, and then in Korea. Um, but, uh, no, in India. And But it's also the third biggest audience is in the US and it's coming over here as well. It's growing faster than um, Facebook, YouTube, WhatsApp. Um, it's huge. But where I'm scared about it is because at every single level, it's built in AI. So guess how much a free to use, free platform um, of 15 second videos is worth in the economic market today? It's bound to be a unicorn. It's bound to be in the billions by now, is it? So it's worth more than Uber. It is 75 billion dollars and half of our listeners would have heard of it no. because of a generational divide on that so fundamental question to me is a free-to-use platform um that's similar to facebook and whatsapp um is now worth 75 billion dollars so what is it that is worth so much money mm. and my theory is that it is all about the ai it's not only studying how things spread and the delivery side of people's um, usage, but it's also learning creativity. So they've built in the AI functionality right at the um, the innovation stage. So if you thought that AI was simply about whether or not you could automate your um, bookkeeping services, no, no, TikTok is showing us that AI is going to learn creativity, innovation, um, social ideas, and the spreading all around um, the world. It is a mass data mining, creating and sharing new content and learning how humans do it. And it is all based in China. Uh, yeah, this, that's the scary bit at the end, obvious in China. Yeah, there's the two types of AI. I think the ones you program it, you come to a junction, do I turn left or right? But there's the one that learns itself and goes deeper. And, and this is about learning creativity, as you say, and pushing the boundaries. So we're, we're coming close here on time and we need to land some stuff. So you said TikTok's scary. Uh, you said uh, we're, we're living in this kind of brave new world. We've, we've referenced Postman before and, and Huxley in 1984. What are we saying as we try and land this, Joe? Okay, so for me, when I start to freak out by some of these things and look at the powers and the authorities that are influencing and changing our behaviour, it really can seem quite overwhelming. So for me, I come back to Philippians 4, where it tells us to not be anxious, but to rejoice in the grace from God. It's now about not getting fixated on the parts that we have no control over. But remember that there is a God who sits on the throne, who is above all powers, all principalities, all governments, our footstools to his feet. And we can be a non-anxious presence mm, in the midst so of good. all of these sort of conversations. I love that phrase, that non-anxious presence phrase it's just i think it's so apt to the space in which we're living and um, the analogy that paul uh, draws often draws in this scenario is between slavery the kind of bondage and then family and it's interesting we kind of think well, i want to come out of slavery but i want my own individual freedom but he's saying no the other is family mm. we're sons and daughters of the king that's where freedom is found but it's still in a family that we can sometimes think of as a bit restrictive because relationships ultimately do lead us into freedom um, Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are now in Christ. The Spirit has set us free. And those who are led by the Spirit are children of God. Uh, and, and I guess I was noting this just sitting in a train where every person had their headphones in, they were locked onto a device, they were yep. tethered to technology. And listen, we've all done it. I, I do it sometimes too. I'm not saying that's wrong. 
but we are to be as free as children. You see our kids are sometimes running outside and onto the swing and the slides and just getting free and they don't like to be tethered in any shape or form. Um, the whole of creation, Romans 8 reminds us, is kind of groaning to be set free from the bondage of decay. And it's this great reminder that if God is for us, who can be against us? In all things, we are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so as AI comes down the tracks, there are things we need to be worried about and engage with and thoughtful on. But we also don't need to be anxious in the sense of being panicked by it. It's not going to overwhelm us. God knew this was coming, saw this coming. It's absolutely nothing new. I think we can start to pick behind it and see some of the problems ethically and around work and around relationships and go, ah, that's where that's problematic. And this is where it might be helpful. And so uh, we're not defined by our job, but by our deeper calling and gifting that we have that goes beyond that. And so in that moment, we want to say that that's okay. We can work with that. Ethical challenges are coming, but we have a moral framework that says it doesn't matter if AI is coming down the tracks. And it could radically redefine relationships for sure. Uh, marriage to a robot. It's just like, what? But we're made in the image of relational God. We are relational beings. We are wired for relationships. Like God is three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit makes us in his image for relationships. And that doesn't include a robot. <laughs> okay. Um, I agree. Um, so AI is coming. Um, AI is here. And it's going to bring just as many opportunities, I think, as it is going to be uh, bringing us challenges. What does it mean to talk about our longings and our needs? Why are people um, seeking transactional relationships rather than committed and communal ones? What does it mean to pursue the presence of God? Um, and these things will become all the more necessary for us who follow Jesus. And what does it mean for us to practice our discipleship as non-anxious presence um, and be missionally engaged with people who are struggling in this new space. Freedom is going to become ever more important in this, wow, in this world of power um, and as technology becomes all the more persuasive and pervasive, um, lots of people are going to be trying to find ways to come back to each other. Sabbath is going to be a place for this as well. We often talk about Sabbath, this need to step off, unplug, rest. But ultimately, in this conversation, I think it's an act of res resistance um, that is saying it's not about how I plug in. It's not about legalism or rules, but it is about rest and relationships. Yeah, absolutely. I love uh, we were in Vancouver studying for a season and uh in, in Jewish Sabbath, the Jewish community ten, tends to live together because they have to walk uh, to church on the Sabbath or to synagogue on the Saturday. Um, so you need to live near. And so they tend to congregate in one particular area and then the shops and other things uh, come in that area. And I love that what God did was bless time, which had a consequence then of bringing people together in a place and driving relationship because of the way he did that. Rather than saying you have to live together, he said, I bless time. And you need to walk to your church on, on Sabbath. And so it combines that with the idea of the church. And in that we have this kind of divine economy, a different way of thinking. And so we'll end maybe with this quote from the former chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs. To become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining a strong link with the outside world while staying true to your faith. Seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is a demanding and risk-laden choice. Beautiful. 
Okay, so we're going to see you next time uh, when we're going to be talking about all things free in our culture and society. Remember, we are a new podcast. We're available on any podcast platform of choice. Please do uh, subscribe so that the next episode will land straight on your device. Um, please do uh, like us, share us, tell other people about us and, uh, and keep in touch. We'll see you next time. Be blessed. <laughs>